Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right. Welcome. Welcome to the Where's the Beef uh, edition of The Nose. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron as a rom-com couple. Uh, we're going to talk about a documentary about Cambridge Analytica. Uh, and we are going to, right now, this very second, consume the uh, brand new, newly introduced to the mass market uh, Impossible Whopper Burger, which is to say that Impossible Foods, which is kind of the most high-tech, high-end um, artificial vegetable textured beef company ever, um, and uncannily so, has now partnered with um, Burger King. Burger, you can now get your Whopper as an Impossible Burger, a non-beef burger. And I, I, I should also say that we did an entire show about. Um, sort of artificial hamburgers and <laughs> there must be a nicer word for that. I just can't think what it is. But Impossible Foods, we actually, Chris Prosperi and I cooked and ate Impossible Burgers here in the studio and they're like uncanny because first of all, they can sit out under the lights for hours but they look, I mean, the, the raw product looks exactly like ground beef and quite a lot of genetic engineering and stuff has gone into making that happen. All right, so who's in the studio, you ask? Jim Chapdelaine is an Emmy Award-winning musician, producer, composer, and recording engineer, patient advocate for people with rare cancers. Tanisha Dugan, producing associate at TheaterWorks. James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, where right now they are doing uh, an ongoing eight Kubricks uh, series. So which Kubricks in the wall are we seeing this weekend? Uh, this weekend, we have uh, Clockwork Orange, the restoration of Clockwork Orange on Friday and Saturday. And then um, on Sunday, we start with Eyes Wide Shut, which doesn't get shown very often. And that's also a uh, restoration. Is there like, I mean, I saw Eyes Wide Shut when it came out. Is, is there like a director's cut or anything? Or is it just basically the same movie? No, it's the, it's basically the same movie. Right. There were there was no director's cut of that. Um, the only in the series, the only major change is that what we are showing with two thousand one is a, 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 a we're bringing back the photochemical copy of the seventy millimeter film print physical film print that was commissioned um, by Christopher Nolan. And the difference there is that it is a print made from the original negative without any digital intervention. And right. it's quite spectacular to see. That's coming up 2001. Well, there may have been Odyssey. some uh, digital intervention involved in assembling these uh, hamburgers <laughs> that we have in front of us. So I think without further ado, so we all have um, – um, uh, we have the Impossible Burger, Whopper Burger uh, right here before us and we are about to bite into our pieces. Um, drum, drum is there a preference? Which one to start with? The impossible. Mm. Impossible. I mean, from a certain point of view, we should start with the regular Whopper and then see if – but I'm just so much more curious about the Impossible Burger and so much more afraid of the regular burger. <laughs> mm. I'm feeling distinctly vice versa. Right. <laughs> People have, who have a real problem with listening to chewing on the radio, just turn your radios down for a couple seconds. And this those be who over love soon. ASMR, right. turn beat, it all the way up. You beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the verdict here? Not bad. Pretty equivalent. Mm. 
Well, I don't have anything to compare it with, but it's okay. <laughs> Boy, these are all ringing endorsements. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I don't think there's anything deep or profound to be said about this particular topic other than, you know, for people like James, for example, who does not eat red meat, let us imagine that James, for some strange reason, did want to consume a Burger King product or was with a group of people who insisted on going to Burger King with him. I mean, this is sort of a nice thing, right, that you can get this thing and it, it you know, I mean, I don't. Would you it ever, would you like ever a, in a million years find yourself ordering such a thing? I guess that's a good question. I personally, no, I don't think so. But it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> I mean, taste-wise, it it to me it tastes more of sort of salt and sugar and condiments than anything distinctive about the, I guess, the ersatz meat. <laughs> um, <coughs> that's the brand. That's what they should call it. Yeah, Airsats. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Airsats. So, Airsats. so you've hit upon the Tanisha Dugan theory of Burger King, right? That it's is, true. Go that, ahead. Uh, explicate your theory. It's The Whopper is more about the things on top of the meat or meat byproduct than it is about the meat itself. Whopper you know, toppers. Whopper toppers, yes. It's the onion and tomato and lettuce and all of the mayo that really is giving us – the flavor. Yeah. I mean, I sort of think, I sort of agree that this is meaningless. I mean, it's meaningful <laughs> in the sense that, you know, once again, if you have an opposition to eating red meat or meat in general, you can go to Burger King and partake of the fundamental experience. I'll tell you the difference. I just had the regular Whopper. It's, it still has its alarmingly charred, charcoal mm-hmm. kind of taste in a way that the Impossible Burger does not. I'm always weirded out by any derivatives of vegetables to be like meat. I always right. feel like... Why do if they one need is, to be? Right. right. Can't they just be what they are, which is... There's also something else to my mind, too, which is that <clears throat> the day of the burger and red meat is rapidly drawing to a close. I think that the climate change, when people start saying climate change and think about climate crisis and they really start to see you know, major cities getting flooded and stuff like that, um, we might have a real conversation about whether we should be farming vast numbers of cows to eat them. That would be nice if we did have that conversation, but it's quite possible people will want more burgers to eat while they watch. Unfortunately, that, that. That, that might be true, but when they can't open the doors of their houses because of the mm-hmm. water outside, then that might change. You could have that conversation while having one of these burgers. Right. <laughs> quite um, easy, I think. It's not bad. I mean, I, and I'm An idle a, conversation of the 18th century. Right, right. So, <laughs> so uh, um, my w- wife makes those, they come out like frozen discs. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done grilling them, they go in like warm discs. And I've, <laughs> I've tried to eat them. They're, it feels like spelt and dirt. And, and so the only solution is to like smother them with Whopper topping. Well, I, I this will, is a little better. Yeah, I will tell you that. I mean, so this Impossible Burger, which is actually, as I recall, um, the result of um, a guy who was a geneticist uh, working in academia who decided to leave there and started a company where he used everything he knew uh, about genes to create a vegetable product that had a lot of the qualities of beef, including the fact that it kind of seems to bleed a little bit when it's raw and stuff if like this that. This ends with Soylent Green. That's not, we did that show sick. too. We, had a, we did a show where we drank Soylent. Uh, we've done all these shows. But when we did the Impossible show, I mean, so Chris Prosperi, who's a chef and a gourmand, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, both he and I ate them and it really, you easily could fool somebody. And we ate them without any ketchup or condiments of any kind or anything that might have um, 
confused the matter. Uh, and Are you it, telling me that the, that the burger bleeds? It does. Yes, yes. and so they it, spent a lot of time on that. It gives you red juices? Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, yeah, they, they, there's actually something that I believe it, I'm doing all this from memory right now. I should have re-listened to that show, but uh, something called heme, uh, H-E-E-M, which is sort of their <laughs> version of hemoglobin or something, but it's actually wow. a, a vegetable oh. thing. That is uh, scary. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's why I say this is, this is the sort of black mirror version of, a, of the discs that Jim's wife makes on the grill, right? This is, you know, this is, I mean, veggie burgers have been around for a really long time. This is the but black there's no mirror. There's confusing those with anything but like a horrible right. tasting dry mess. I, I've had the Impossible Burger here in the studio. I've also, there's a restaurant called Flora in West Hartford Center where I, I, you, you can order it. I've had it there too. And it really it, – it can fool you. It would fool you in a way that the discs don't. So that there's the difference. I mean I think some people would say the Beyond Burger, which is you know also kind of in a, of a similar vein, looks like hamburger, kind of tastes like hamburger, could fool a lot of people too. But this for real uh, could do it even if there weren't 85 different kinds of condiments on it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We, we may have said all there is to say about this um, and we're sorry for chewing uh, on your radio, but there was no other way to get around this. Uh, so I'm thinking, you know, maybe what we should do here at the – in order to – because we have two whole movies that we need to talk about and they're, of course, radically different movies. Maybe we should get started here before we go to a break on, on talking about Longshot. So uh, Longshot is a rom-com. It has moved out of the theaters and into On Demand. Uh, it uh, stars the unlikely pairing of Seth Rogen uh, as a lefty kind of slubby – I guess that goes without saying with Seth Rogen, um, journalist who's a little down in his luck too um, and, and who has been in love since the age of 12 with the incomparable beauty that is Charlize Theron, although in this case she is somebody who has moved up through the ranks of politics and government uh, to, to be secretary of state uh, and is now poised for a presidential bid uh, partly because the president is Bob Odenkirk uh, who is even more trapped in his television past. He's actually a guy who kind of played the, played an actual president on television and then got elected president, which seems less and less implausible with each passing day. And so the a movie thrust the two of them uh, into a potential romantic orbit. I'm looking to see what the clip is that we are going to play here. Uh, uh, we're going to hear the chief advisor to Charlize Theron's character, a uh, an actress named June Diane Raphael, who I never had seen before and I, I thought was remarkable in this role, as Maggie. She's the chief advisor, chief staffer to Charlize Theron's Charlotte Field. And I believe they're discussing this whole situation. So we asked a thousand constituents how they would feel if, say, Princess Mm. Di, if she were to start dating Guy Fieri. I don't even know who that is. Don't like that. Yeah. Or Kate Middleton were to start dating Danny DeVito. I see where you're going with this. Pretty negative reaction. Or if Jennifer Lawrence were to start dating this potato in a teal windbreaker. I'd be very upset. You did a lot of work and I... Well, but can I, I just but, finish? No, I've that's a like a lot of... I get to go it. Through. Madam Secretary, I have no desire to limit your romantic life. Good. But the optics of you and Fred will make a presidential run very challenging. Fred is a journalist. Who's written some extremely f***ed up stuff. No, that's exposed some really up stuff. And as you so I know for myself, you're comfortable with putting everything on the line for a hookup. Oh my god, why are we having 
this conversation. This is insane. I don't have to explain myself to you. I'm sorry, I really don't understand this and I love you, Charlotte. I want you to be happy, but more than that, I want you to be in charge and I want you to be president for the sake of the future of our country. So, so James, one thing that we should start out by saying is that rom-coms used to be more pervasive than they are now. One theory is the studios don't like them as much as they used to because studios want franchises. They want John Wick. They want Jack Reacher, if that's an actual name of a character. Uh, they want things that they can make five movies out of, and a rom-com basically is over at the end of the rom-com. So it seems like this is a form that has suffered a little bit. Well, I think it suffered a little bit for another reason, which is the quality of the actors who can do it, who can carry it off. Um, and I really like Charlize Theron and, um, uh, and I think that she is a person – I don't know. I, I think of a rom-com in a way as being a kind of comfort food um, in that it, it's a kind of reassurance that things can be funny and it can be something that you can just come and enjoy as a movie and not see larger issues. But I think that um, Longshot is really trying to combine a sort of savvy awareness of the crazy sort of media-driven and, and artificial image-driven universe that we live in and combine that with a kind of smart characters um, that, that – that, um, it can really carry you into a story and make you feel, well, people are alive and aware of what's going on. And so I find I, I find myself kind of ambivalent, ambivalent about it. I, I think it was funny and it was engaging to a certain point. But I also thought that it was a, it was a trifle and it was a shame to see some people like Theron and Rogan as being, you know, I think they're both better but not in those roles particularly. Um, so I felt that that was ambivalence is really the thing that 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 struck me most about it. Yeah, it's going to turn out. I think that I like this movie better than anybody else on the panel. But let's explore this a little bit more. Uh, yeah, just in a general way, Tanisha, how did this one land for you? Yeah, I think it's cute. I think it's a cute movie. Um, I probably don't think that it's attempting anything any savvy. I guess um, because I I think it's all retrod in some ways, you know. Um, I actually wonder if we're not getting a lot of rom-coms because writers aren't really writing them. You That's know, a good like point. Yeah. when I think yeah. of the the kind of new plays I'm seeing and I gotta assume that the parallels are there, everything is is really inward reflecting um and dark. And and that doesn't necessarily make for good romantic comedies. I will say the sequel idea is probably not wholly untrue, although um, Crazy Rich Asians is about to have a <laughs> sequel. So I think there is a world where you can follow these characters beyond a movie or two. But I don't think that writers are writing compelling treatments for romantic comedies, and therefore they're not getting pushed up the ladder in terms of getting produced. Um, Jim, how about you? Um, if I was typing, I would say I like this, but if I'm speaking, I say eh, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say uh, um, Seth Rogen is I, who I like a lot because he's transgressive. Is Seth Rogen in this movie? Yeah. Uh, Charlize Theron is a, is a really good actress. So, and, and it's it's much of the uh, the improbability of these two getting together might even be based on that, on the fact that one of these people is a really good actress 
playing sort of a I don't know how many dimensions to this character, um, and, and a little bit of it was um, plug and play rom com, mm-hmm. but we're going to flip the conventions, so we're going to be the woke rom com. But then they're really not because there's always the Seth Rogen uh, sexual sort of side of things. So um, I don't know if I even answered your question. Well, I think you did. So <clears throat> let, let me just offer a few defenses of it. I mean, first of all, <laughs> I, I actually thought it was really funny all the way through. And I'm, I consider myself kind of a tough laugh. There's a lot of things that people tell me are funny and I don't think they're funny. Uh, I, I, and I also typically don't like a movie. This movie, what's a nice way to say it? There might be no, no – maybe a – you know, maybe I'll just say it really directly. Not since there's something about Mary has ejaculate been used uh, oh, for true. such uh, comedic purposes. Um, I tend not to like movies like that. I tend not to like that that trade on a lot of really broadly and kind of grossly comically expressed bodily themes. Um, but I thought this was funny. I thought it was written really well. I, I do think, and and I think it explores at least two interesting questions, which is why is it so hard for men? to put themselves in a position where they are the kind of helpmate to a really powerful, prominent woman who's more high-achieving than they are. And that's absolutely the case in this in this couple. Uh, and the other one is there's kind of an interesting thing at the end where um, – and we should tell, talk a little bit about some of the, the bit parts in here, some of which are just terrifically written and played. And so O'Shea Jackson, Jackson Jr. plays Lance, I believe, uh, who is Seth Rogen's character's Fred's best friend and, and who has supported him immaculately and wonderfully and comically and enthusiastically all the way through this. And this isn't a terrible spoiler, but he just reveals the fact that unlike Fred, who's liberal bordering on socialist, uh, he has been for a long time a Republican and a Christian. And so Fred has to kind of process all that about the person why that he has depended they, on most They're of. best friends, right? Like, yeah. Why didn't they know these things about each other? And well, also an irritating <laughs> spin. I mean, I know I'm being, a, like, I'm being a jerk on. here by doing that. But, th- but there's what? a suspension no, of disbelief that okay, goes on right, here, right? Yes, I mean, especially yeah. when yeah. that yeah. black man says that's what is happening. To yeah, that's, that's the, you're right on with that. Yes. When, when the, uh, the black man is, is, is a, is a, becomes a device at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But that's part of their, oh, we're flipping the tropes because yeah. we're woke. Yeah. yeah. You know? And now we're going to go double woke on you by flipping it back on you. Um, but, but that said, there, it, there's some really funny stuff in here. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, th- I don't want to spoil it, but I think my favorite line was when they're talking about people who have transitioned from television to movies. Mm-hmm. And who are the two? George Clooney and, and uh, uh, no one can remember that it's like Michael, the Michael Collins of this movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, is it Ed Begley? It's somebody like that. Well, yeah. No, so I mean, whoever that second yeah. one, and then somebody says Jennifer Aniston, and and they said, but did she really? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are there are a, a lot of showbiz jokes in this thing, and a lot of and they're kind of merciless. Of, yeah. yeah, they you are know? merciless uh, jokes that are. Uh, and and I, I mean, look, one of the things that if I were going to be troubled or offended uh, by this movie, which I'm not, I just actually thought it was really funny and I really enjoyed it. But uh, if I were going to be troubled by it, it does kick a particular tripwire that we've seen in the past, although I can't come up with a terrific example of it offhand. But it's the uptight, humorless, driven woman whose life is devoid of pleasure because she's had to focus so much uh, on the prize she's seeking, who is loosened up by the fun, more earthy, pleasure-seeking guy. You know, And I feel like I've seen that particular tune played a few times before. I mean, I think Theron's character is so funny. and she. I mean, I've never seen Charlize Theron in a comedy. Maybe she's done other ones, but she's really funny in this. 
and, and the way that they write it. For example, one of the many little oddities she has is she has developed a way of sleeping while standing up. Oh my God. Um, you know, for With like her eyes wide for, open. You know, for yeah. micro naps and stuff <laughs> like that. She's got all these little coping mechanisms and she knows a breathing exercise that the Navy SEALs taught her. She's got all these coping mechanisms that basically keep her in a very sterile way focused on th- this whole policy-driven life that she has. And it, it is a cliche, but I think it's a cliche that's executed with some real humor here. I, once again, it had me laughing the entire time. It's Apollo and Dionysus, right? I mean, that is yeah, the, the, yeah. S- at the center of it. And right. So we like to watch that. We like to see logic be played out, but, you know, opposite right. fun and pleasure. And he also is serving as, you know, a, a rooting grounding force for her, a reminder to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I think the movie was probably trying to do too many things. And I think that's probably why I couldn't hop on board fully because the movie that's about the guy really being the partner and support mm-hmm. is a movie I'd be down to watch. Yeah. But you're right. There's a lot of things going on, including, you know, staying true to your pole star in politics and all well, this the, kind of stuff. There's also the fact that he as a character is is, effentri- is essentially subjugating his journalism, his commitment to journalism, to her needs by the end of the movie. And I'm not sure I'm uh, – I, I totally believe that. Uh, I, I It doesn't ring – like it's funny as a device, but it doesn't really ring true. And I think that in many cases, people who are very powerful and charismatic often have these dalliances with people that they wouldn't want anybody to know about right. because that's how they sort of – you know, they short-circuit their uptightness. Um, but in this case, the film was trying to make out that, well, you could bring this all out into the open with a courageous partner who would actually come out and say, well, I'm buying into this and I'm going to be this and uh, the, the world is going to have to deal with me that way, which I think is not a bad message at all. But in that case, it has to be a sense of what is the partnership here. You don't have to subjugate yourself and say, well, because you're running for president, I'm going to be – you know, a house husband kind of thing when I'm really a journalist. Well, I don't know. I mean, the the precedent here would be Sherrod Brown and Connie Schultz. And, and I'm assuming that if Sherrod Brown ever did become president, he decided not to. I don't want to see that hard drive. <laughs> exactly. But, um, yes, but the, you do. <laughs> I guess, you know, I guess Connie would, uh, you know, I don't think Connie would be a journalist at that point. I mean, she's a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. I don't even know if she's a journalist now. You know, a but, part uh, of what we're doing is what I call the time travel conundrum. Mm-hmm. Like you go see it. You, if you're going to watch this movie, you have to suspend your disbelief. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then – and we're kind of potshotting it, which is what we're here to do. But when you see a time travel movie, you're three quarters of the way through. You're really invested and then somebody does some weird time travel thing and you go, that couldn't happen. Yeah. And, and wait a second. We've just believed that people could travel through time throughout the whole movie. So there's a little bit – you have to give a little bit to get get right. it back from well, this. Well, witness the number of people who who nitpicked Game of Thrones because right, exactly. there were certain right. things that didn't conform to their idea of realistic right. expectations. Um, so, yeah, uh, um, a couple of things. Uh, uh, well, particularly in that suspending of disbelief, there's sort of an odd thing, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything. When there's sort of a, one of the climactic scenes near the end, uh, there's a moment where Charlize Theron, a character for president, starts dropping f bombs at a you know major. Public, public event, you know, with the press all filming away and writing down, 
which would have been really shocking, except we were watching it during the week that Beto O'Rourke dropped an F-bomb on camera to the press. So reality maybe sort of catches up with fiction sometimes. It's so funny. I thought you were going to go down the Molly route. I did, well, I did not yeah. think that the, the cuss road would be the thing. Well, no. But, then, so, yeah. The, uh, first of all, there is a sequence, once again, not a spoiler, where they both take Molly uh, while abroad uh, and turn – and it's – I she's hilarious in that sequence. That, yes. She's good. Really, yes. really funny. I mean, that whole sequence is really, really funny. Could we, I, we should just say a few word of, words about the, some of the supporting roles. Uh, the O'Shea, O'Shea Jackson Jr., who's the oldest son of Ice Cube, plays Ice Cube in uh, Straight Outta Compton, um, is really remarkable in this role. He seems like a young guy who's like you know going to have an interesting career. He's got uh, the uh, adaptation of the Brian Stevenson book. Um, which is called Just Mercy or something like that, coming out in December. Um, but I mean, I found him. There's always a sidekick, right? You got to have a yeah, sidekick. Yeah. It's a convention. I thought he was a great sidekick. Yeah. He was good. Yes. Yeah. And and we do have Bob Odenkirk. We have Lisa Kudrow in a very very short turn as exactly Lisa the, Kudrow really stole that. Yeah, uh, she, she was very good. She was very funny. And this woman who plays Maggie, the the uh, her aide, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, she was very good. Chief. And she's I've never seen her. In, I guess she's had a TV career that have you seen? She stuff looked really she's been familiar in? to me, but yeah. I can't. She looked like a familiar face. All right. So I don't know the panel. The panel doesn't care whether you see this movie or not. Um, I mean, you could it's see it. It's a good Netflix yeah, and chill. You could see it. Kind of right. movie. I would say see it. Right. I, I will say that I was back from uh, Italy the day before and I tried to – my clock was way off. So I actually fell asleep during the hard drive scene. <laughs> and and uh, when I went right. back to rewatch it, I thought, ah. Oh, you thought – that's yeah. why it's called Long Buongiorno. Uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd say see it. Uh, I, but I, I think in the end it's kind oh, of to me a trifle. that's why it's called The Long Shot. <laughs> Um, I've been working on that title for a long time. I was like, I don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, fellas. It's a little, little double entendre there. Uh, all right, I definitely so, needed boys so, to help me figure that right. one out. So I, I would say see it. I mean, unless you have really delicate sensibilities, um, I would say see it. Uh, there is some kind of gross-out humor. But it's uh, toned down, Seth Rogen. Yes. Right. And it's, it's a, I think it's a very smart movie in a lot of ways. So uh, I'm the biggest endorser of it. All right. We're going to take a break. We've got a whole other movie a very different movie mm. where I'm going to be the other side of the fence this time, probably. So I'm being encouraged to say one more thing, this sort of a little bit of inside gossip. Uh, so I should say, first of all, that I probably watch fewer Seth Rogen movies than the average movie-watching American. I just – I'm not a big fan. I don't, for the most part, like Judd Apatow movies very much. And so that's not going to take me too much into Seth's path. So watching this movie, 
uh, I was the entire time going, this, he reminds me so much of somebody, so much of somebody I knew in real life, so much. And then I gradually realized that it was Carlos Mejia who works here and actually was just taking pictures of us eating Impossible Burgers. And it's particularly the voice. Carlos and Seth Rogen have almost identical voices. And there may be a little bit uh, of some other things uh, that are similar. Uh, and so I said to Jonathan McNichol, who's the producer of this episode, did you notice how much Seth Rogen is like Carlos? He goes, yeah, I was thinking exactly that the whole time. So then we did the thing, or I guess I did the thing, and I'm sure I do it more than most people, where you go to somebody and say, does anybody ever say that you remind them of uh, – and it turns out a lot of people say that to Carlos, and he's really tired of it. <laughs> and he doesn't enjoy that comparison if he ever did anymore. Uh, and so anyway. I thought this was for sure going to John Dacosky. No, 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 no. I don't know who John well, I see as a Seth Rogen of, <laughs> of WNPR. Careful. He's out there. He could come in. Um, so anyway, we I have to – I see the interview now. Yes. Um, I mean the other one that we have around here is that, that uh, Kristen Bell uh, of The Good Place and Katie Tularski are oh, also remarkably resemble one another. But um, nobody cares on the outside about any of that actually. I don't know why I was encouraged to talk about it. Uh, so we, we're shifting gears here. This is a, a documentary that's available on Netflix right now and I think nowhere else. It's called The Great Hack. Um, it uh, basically looks at the involvement of Cambridge Analytica mainly in the Brexit campaign and then in the 2016 election. Cambridge Analytica – was a political consulting firm specializing, as the second part of its name suggests, in data analytics. Uh, and it initially sold its services to Ted Cruz. Uh, and then when the Ted Cruz campaign failed to sufficiently benefit from the, from the help of Cambridge Analytica, then uh, threw in its lot with Donald Trump. So um, we're going to play a little clip from the show. Uh, you're going to hear a couple of people from Cambridge Analytica, including Alexander Nix, its CEO, uh, talk uh, about what happened when people, when the press got really interested in what kind of role Cambridge Analytica had in these campaigns, particularly in the harvesting of or the using of harvested Facebook data to uh, create uh, or to do sort of modeling of voters and, and try to influence them based on what they knew from all those data points available from Facebook. So you'll hear a couple of the principles uh, of uh, Cambridge Analytica. You'll hear journalists and you'll hear uh, Chris Wiley, one of the two major whistleblowers about Cambridge. And it came like a tsunami. There were 35,000 media stories per day. They wanted to discredit Trump. They wanted to discredit Brexit. And we were the vehicle for doing it. Do you feel that you have skewed democracy? By providing campaign services to a candidate who'd been fairly nominated as the Republican representative of the United States? How is that possible? Cambridge Analytica became responsible for pretty much everything that was wrong in the world. But are you saying that Cambridge Analytica lies? They knowingly misrepresent the truth. What's your proof for that? I was there. Chris Wiley spoke with great authority about what had gone on in Cambridge Analytica and SEL during 2015 and 2016, at a time when he was never there. 
He had worked for the company for nine months, left in 2014. He then went out and pitched the Trump campaign and lost to us. Chris Wiley set out to kill the company. What about Brittany? I don't know what Brittany was doing. All right. So what about Brittany would have been a good name for the movie, too. It was um, – uh, before we go to the panel here, uh, the film essentially focuses on two significant stories. One of them is David Carroll, uh, a professor at Parsons uh, in New York City. He teaches uh, media studies and, um, uh, and media creation. He becomes interested in the whole question of what kind of Facebook data, what kinds of – what gr- constellation of thousands of data points uh, did Facebook have? have uh, and uh, what wound up in the possession uh, of, um, of Cambridge Analytica. And he sues to get that information. He wants – he feels as though it's basically his property. He wants to know what they know about him or what they think they know about him. So we see a little bit of his quest. And then Brittany Kaiser uh, is one of the two whistleblowers from Cambridge Analytica. She's uh, a rather spellbinding, uh, hard not to keep watching uh, presence in this movie. She's an unusual-looking person and a person of unusual affect. She's somebody who drifted over towards Cambridge Analytica from a career working more on the left side of the spectrum, uh, suddenly placing her services at the feet of this uh, possibly nefarious organization. All right. I've babbled enough. Uh, so uh, James, I'm going to just start with you again because you're, um, you're the cineast among us. How does this work as a documentary? Well, as a documentary, I thought it was very absorbing. I found it very, really interesting. Um, I have been following that story pretty closely. It's one of the few that I keep sort of uh, watching new revelations about, and I think it's kind of interesting. But I also think that um, as a documentary, it's it's really focused on this very fundamental search by the main protagonist for the data that he believes he owns, the issue of data rights and the the ability to control your life in that way. And in a way, um, I think that illustrates what I feel about the documentary, which is that it purports to be about Cambridge Analytica as this sort of evil organization. But I think that's a red herring, really. The real problem is the essentially the theft of our personalities, the theft of our behavior um, without paying us uh, by organizations like Facebook that are harvesting all the information and then selling it and then actually, uh, as they mention in the film, uh, weaponizing it essentially. They they have euphemisms for it like calling it psyops. But in many ways, Facebook is becoming a software algorithm that is being used as a weapon against us in giving, taking our power as citizens, as individual citizens, human beings of the world, taking our power away and then all of these uh, data points, if you like, about us that are then bought and sold are actually used against us in terms of the body politic, the, the polity, the, the, the fact that human society could actually be something that benefits the people who live in it rather than a small oligarchy that actually steals everything and controls everything. And I think that particular side of it is incredibly well illustrated by one of the protagonists, who is Alexander Nix, who I think I mentioned our email exchange. I mean, the British call them toffs. They're, they're rich, entitled people 
who are not particularly well educated, but they just think they own everything, and they they latch onto something like the professors, uh, the professor from Cambridge, who Alexander, Alexander Kogan, I believe, who um, provided the information, and they latch onto it and they monetize it. And then they feel incredibly wounded when people go after them and actually right. expose them for what they did. All right. So, OK, we'll go down, right down the line, Jim. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I mean, I don't know if I liked it. It was, it was a little bit of a horror movie. Um, and it's – I would say uh, to James's point, um, I was expecting it to be a little bit more about Cambridge Analytica and the sort of role, the Mercers and, and all the stuff that I would – and I sort of initially was like, come on, go, go down that alley. But they don't. They go, it's really about uh, what James is talking about. You're, you're owning your personal data and not having it weaponized against you. So once I recovered from that idea that here's what it's going to be, uh, then, then it's good. I, I think part that I would take issue with is one of the characters, Brittany, also Dustin's sister on Stranger Things, um, <laughs> I think – uh, it, this is sort of a bit of a rehab film for her and I'm not sure uh, – you know, we were talking in the lobby earlier. There's white hats and black hats. Maybe she's a gray hat. I don't know that she can fully be rehabilitated given the scope of, of what she did. So uh, I mean I'm all for trying. I'm glad she's, she's doing it. Uh, but that was my take on it. But I, I would call it essential viewing. All right. Um, I'll be an opposing viewpoint at the end of all of this. Go ahead, go ahead. But go ahead, Tanisha. Yeah, you know, I am interested in this movie as it had me thinking about what it means to change behavior and how to weaponize changing the masses' behavior uh, and what culture can do for that. And I, interestingly enough, had watched Social Network like last week as like a lullaby. I was like, I need something to put me to sleep. And I thought about the idea that Sorkin puts in front of us, which is that Zuckerberg came up with this as a way to shift the behavior of a very single girl uh, that hurt him. And watching this documentary, I go, yes, he has succeeded in making sure that you can weaponize how somewhat the way in which someone responds to the world, whether it's their boob size or the music they like to listen to, um, to shift the environment around him in that case, right, at, at university as a young person. Um, and in the case of the Trump campaign and Brexit, to, to shift these societies. So it's, it is, I agree, uh, must watch. Um, not because it's great. But because it's a because piece it's of a bigger puzzle. It's information. And yeah. one of the really interesting sort of clips they show, I, one MSNBC pundit is talking about this. And instead of talking about actually what Cambridge Analytics was doing and what Brittany Kaiser was doing, they talk about her going – having the keys to Steve Bannon's apartment building, right? Like that is the information that our journalists are using to talk about it as opposed to what this documentary does, right. which says they are taking your information and shifting point. your behavior. Yeah. See, I have to stop there and say one of the things that this – I think this documentary is incredibly meretricious and borderline worthless. Um, <laughs> and, and 
one of the things that they do, they don't have the burden of, of journalism. Journal, in journalism, you are at least nominally required to include things, facts and arguments that don't support your hypothesis. What these filmmakers do is exclude any information that doesn't completely support their hypothesis. So a few points worth making is – Finding Neverland, right? Yeah. I mean that's how documentaries work. Right. So, so – <laughs> but th- that's why they th- – I think this documentary is vastly inferior to journalism. Start with the fact that Alexander Kogan, the guy who supposedly – so basically we, I, I need like half an hour to explain all this. But so what they're saying is, OK, they get you – know, maybe they get 5,000 data points about you from Facebook. Well, those data points are useless unless they can be scraped and condensed into something, into some picture. If I know 5,000 things about you, I don't know anything about you. I need to know the things that are relevant and the things that make you persuadable, whatever. So Kogan was supposedly the guy who did that, except it's his position, which may be self-protective, that the stuff he gave Cambridge Analytica doesn't work, that he'd never been able to make it work. He'd never been able to make it uh, predictive or persuasive in the way that it's supposed to be. There is zero evidence that Cambridge Analytica had any impact whatsoever uh, on either Brexit or the Trump campaign. But you could watch this documentary and not understand that no such evidence exists. And I'm saying there's zero evidence based on this documentary. No, zero evidence based on anything. I'm a – well, the evidence would be that we have a man in the the office of the presidency that – actually wasn't voted on by the populace and that the techniques used uh, by marketers, because that's mm-hmm. that's how this documentary gets to me, gets to me as a marketer. They use those 5,000 points because those 5,000 points actually helps define a user persona, which is essentially what I do when I market you a ticket to the theater. Right, but, like, you but know, they created a campaign of, fa- of fake news and fake groups and fake people well, the and Rus- marketed the, to vulnerable people. The, the Russians did much more of that than Cambridge Analytica ever did. And I mean the other thing to say is – I mean the Obama campaign in 2012 used Facebook data incredibly effectively. Uh, and, and I mean I don't have time to explain how they did it. But And campaigns forever have been doing stuff like buying information about you, buying the mailing list of the Sierra Club to see who the donors are. Campaigns – Yes, but lost. the difference there, is a very- how specific we can get about knowing how to talk to you. Right. It's also, and it's, Facebook has has compiled all that information in a mm. way that no other platform has compiled it. But, but how nefarious will you behave? I mean, you know, I don't know that did Obama's campaign uh, misuse information? I don't think there's any evidence that they misused information. But the other thing is I didn't see in this movie – the real proof that Cambridge Analytica reached a, a, a lot of people. And uh, one thing that I have to say that's really important, I've covered so many political campaigns, and one of the inexhaustible reservoirs of bullcrap in this country is what political consultants say to candidates in order to get the work. In other words, every political consulting firm that's pitching every candidate they can get there, get close to, they claim they have the secret sauce. You found uh, the connection. Lisa Kudrow. How, yeah. However, I, I think that that's all true, but I think that the game has totally changed in the last five years and especially now with the current campaign that's underway, what has really changed is real time. All of these consultants were working with data that was essentially old by the time it was used. 
you were not dealing with real time with Facebook and with these analytical services that they offer. You're dealing with people who are online now and you're dealing with their reactions to, say, the arrest of, of, of lots of supposedly illegal people in Mississippi. The, at that very moment that they're reading the story, the story is being manipulated because they can do that. And in the past, they couldn't do that. That is the story that's different. And actually, Cambridge Analytica was very much on the, on the rising wave of that. And they were also involved with money from the Russian government, nine Nine, I think 9.6 million British pounds in actually uh, manipulating the Brexit vote. And that is something that is actually the subject of a criminal case in London at the moment. Although I think a failure of this documentary is, I mean, it barely, I mean, the, the Russian hack on our election system is a really big story. In this documentary, it's no story whatsoever. This is all but about Cambridge Analytica. Yes, and but it's part story. Of it, to my mind, it is part of this issue that I think that very few ordinary citizens understand when they get on Facebook. That at that very moment that they are reading the news, at this very moment they're seeing the news feed, they're seeing the featured things that are supposedly from people who are their friends that are actually plants. This is real-time stuff to manipulate the story before somebody has heard anything that could be okay. called facts. I'm, I'm getting a lot of wrap-up things. <laughs> so, <laughs> that explains why James didn't accept my friend right. request. So we got to take a break so we'll have any time at all for endorsements. Here we go. When you get down to it, how did Frank Sinatra know that if you like a Gershwin tune and a fireside when a storm is due, you probably also like potato chips, moonlight, and motor trips. Talk about data points. Very suspicious. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Seth Rogen. On Monday, the scramble scrapes up some thoughts about the weekend's news. And now... Back to Colin. All right. So we, we rarely have like really good uh, arguments on this show. And <laughs> the problem is it used up too much time. So we've got time for endorsements. We're going to have to go rather. We've got about five minutes, though. Uh, why don't you get us started, James? Um, I just started reading a wonderful series of books um, uh, that I had started and then not gotten into. But now I've really gotten into by Elena Ferrante. Uh, the first one is My Brilliant Friend. It's a series of four books about uh, basically about women in Italy. Um, and it's an extraordinary saga, uh, very absorbing, very different, and very insightful. Highly recommended. Elena Ferrante, my brilliant friend, is the first one. All right, Jim Chapdelay. Um I have a couple of endorsements. One is uh, if you like empanadas. Uh, yes. I don't know if you already did. I, this. I endorse having empanadas with you. Yes. At that all right. And, and I'm I'm here for everybody. Uh, Pachanga on on Park Road. I've been there a bunch of times, not just with Colin. And everyone that, who goes there really likes it. That hurts. <laughs> so, well, I, I I feel like I indoctrinated you. You there. did that, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now you're one, you're one of mine it now. Won't, Colin. It won't be magical so, if I go without you. So the next two uh, endorsements, um, I'll, I'll only respond to the to the name Nana for you. You guys, I'm so late to the party on these that I feel like I'm Nana. Um, uh, we flew over to uh, Italy on a airline that I think it's like Broken Lego Airlines. 
and really cramped and zero screens, no media. This is such a like a first world problem. But I brought up my, my iPad and I downloaded some things. One of the things I did quite by accident was The Good, uh, the, the good Place. Ah. I liked it. I, I didn't expect to. I really liked it. It's fun. It got me halfway there. Not even halfway there. And then uh, the Sp- Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse oh, yeah. was really, really good. And I had no expectations except I, I knew that it had been well-received. Both of, both of these have been Nose episodes. The good yeah, I, and, I, I knew that. But, so. but I have to recommend it because now I've seen them. Right. And uh, uh, I recommend seeing it on a TV and not an iPad. <laughs> Probably. In, uh, and not, oh, sitting on, not sitting on broken Legos, <laughs> Nana. All right, Tanisha Dugan, what have you got for us? I'm going to endorse Hot Girl Summers. Um and by that, I mean Megan The Stallion, who is a rapper out of Houston, uh, who has coined the term Hot Girl Summer. So to all you women living your best life this summer, yes, Hot Girl Summer. And Lizzo, um, who whose positivity, body positivity, you know, yes, girls, <laughs> Hot Girl Summer. It's almost coming to an end. So let's live it. So as an overarching concept. Yes. Similar to your yield uh, endorsement. Yes. You know. Similar to my yield. Uh, hot woman summer. You yeah. know, take it wherever you need to go, but hot girl summer. All right. I think I can actually build hot on that. Nana. I think I can add to hot this. Nana. So, and, and maybe Tanisha will join me in this. I don't know whether she's seen the movie or not. Um, I, one of the things I want to endorse is Support the Girls, a 2018 comedy film uh, starring the remarkable Regina Hall, who I, I confess I so didn't really funny. have much of an idea of. And she is amazing in this. It's a very, it's a more subtle movie than you think it's going to be. And it's more of an indie movie than you think it's going to be. Uh, Regina Hall plays this remarkable but constantly tested manager of what is basically a Hooters. I think its actual name is Double Whammies or something. Uh, And she's just putting out fires all day long, crises. This is basically a day in her life dealing with crises in this really terrible environment. And and it's funny – it is funny, but it's also it's there's just a lot of humanity, particularly in her performance. I just was blown away by her. And and then another movie that just kind of slipped by me in 2018 was The Old Man and the Gun. Uh, this is uh, supposedly Robert Redford's, I guess, penultimate movie if you count The Avengers uh, Endgame as his last movie. <laughs> but uh, Robert Redford plays a real-life character. Uh, this is all based on a David Grann uh, New Yorker article. Uh, and Sissy Spacek and Casey Affleck and Danny uh, Glover round out the cast. Oh, and also Tom Waits. And, and it's – I, you know, I'm not – once again, I'm not going to claim this is the most brilliant movie I've ever seen. But it's a really genuinely enjoyable movie. Uh, Redford does what Redford can do. Uh, Sissy Spacek also uh, does uh, the things that she does so well. And Casey Affleck kind of hunches around being miserable and uh, croaking uh, out. He actually plays the very dedicated cop who's going to uh, bring this guy down. But he's as usual kind of run down and demoralized and miserable. So uh, two movies you can probably find somewhere in the streaming universe. Thank you.